It's no secret that tenants have it tough at the moment with both record low vacancy rates and record rent increases across the country. And there's no light at the end of the tunnel with a fall in development approvals and an increase in immigration to put additional pressure on our housing situation. But even when the situation wasn't so dire and the balance of power hasn't so starkly been in the favour of property providers, tenants have often been at a disadvantage when pitted against some landlords. Some states have been introducing legislation to increase tenant rights, but with or without this intervention, the lack of security resulting from short tenure residential leases has long been an issue for those who rent, whether that be by choice or by circumstance. What will happen to tenants' rights now that we have this chronic rental shortage? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Award. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. Today, we've invited Leo Patterson-Ross, CEO of the New South Wales Tenants Union, to join us and discuss how tenants are impacted by current market conditions and whether he can see a light at the end of the tunnel. Leo has worked in housing justice and community development for 15 years with over a decade in various roles at the Tenants Union. Stepping up as CEO the day COVID eviction moratoriums were announced in New South Wales. What a gig. He brings together social work training, frontline advocacy experience, and a pragmatic approach to seeking solutions that work. Leo is committed to assisting renters and speaking about the experience of renters in New South Wales. Now, thank you so much for coming along today, Leo. This is a perspective we haven't covered in depth before on this podcast, so it's high time for this important conversation. So welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Leo, it's, it's good to have you on. I mean, um, just the Tenants Union, I guess, give you a context of sort of what you guys do and, you know, the role you play within the process and, um, yeah, and some of the results you try to get for the people that, you know, use your services, I guess. Yeah. So we actually wear a few hats. We are a specialist legal center. So we actually do run our own uh, public interest litigation. Uh, we advise tenants directly. Um, but our biggest activity is supporting a network of about a hundred tenant advocates across New South Wales uh, in 19 different services. And they uh, talked about 40,000 tenants in the last 12 months about various renting issues. So uh, everything from eviction and rents to repairs and bonds, uh, we we see it all. Um, the, the tenants advice services are independent organizations and we provide them with training, with legal support uh, and with, you know, organizational uh, support. And then uh, we also are really the, the key stakeholder in government processes and uh, in the broader community, in, in media and so on, speaking on the behalf of renters. And so we also uh, hear a lot directly from renters about their experience, even if they don't have a, a particular legal issue uh, that, they're, that they're coming for support with. So yeah, we, we have a, a few hats <laughs> that we try and wear all at the same time. That 40,000 um, tenants that have been assisted in the last, did you say, a year? Yeah. Is that an increase or is that sort of normal? Yeah, no, a big increase. Uh, we are seeing a lot more calls about rent increases, a lot more about uh, no grounds evictions as this pressure rises. Uh, so we we had been averaging sort of about twenty five to 30,000. It's really shot up over COVID. Uh, we do have some extra funding uh, at the moment that's also supporting that, but uh, that funding is starting to drop off. And the uh, client numbers are. Leah, I mean, it'd be interesting just for, you know, because we've got people on both sides of the, the coin here, you know, you've got people who are renting and maybe they're investing elsewhere, or maybe they're renting and they're trying to save for a home, or maybe they're renting out their home to a renter and they're renting something. Like renting, you've got to be part of the rental market at some point, even family members and um, et cetera. So, uh, or you're an investor and you've got tenants. And so you really need to know the legislation. So, I mean, that no, um, I guess the eviction sort of process, what is that in New South Wales? And um, you know, how has it changed, you know, throughout COVID and, you know, and, and with all these major rent increases, like, you know, is that really fair when you get a major rent increase and that forces you to get evicted? You know, you're basically victims through a rent increase. Um, so what's sort of the rules of the land at the moment and how have they changed? Yeah. So uh, we're talking here about really Section 84 and 85 of the Residential Tenancies Act 2010. So uh, this is the 
about the third iteration of the kind of modern renting system that started in the late 80s. At the end of a fixed term contract, you can be given 30 days notice or during a periodic agreement where there is no end date, you get, can get a 90 day notice. Um, either way, there is no particular reason that has to be given as to why the tenancy is coming to an end. Uh, and so that means that it's very difficult to challenge. And it does mean that uh, some good reasons uh, or, or some reasonable reasons, perhaps, uh, like an owner moving back in are kind of bundled together with uh, an owner wanting to retaliate against a, a rent increase negotiation or repairs. So, you know, some pretty reasonable things get mixed up and, and, and get tarnished by this uh, sort of untransparent way of bringing a tenancy to an end. And so really that's the reform that I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about in a bit. In relation to rent increases, how this plays out is that we have actually seen people handed a eviction notice and a rent increase notice and told to pick one. Uh, and that's the kind of, you know, really distortion of the relationship that uh, having a untransparent approach to evictions causes. Um, most people, most landlords um, and most agents don't actually serve the no grounds notice, um, but it impacts the relationship because both parties know that it can be served. And so we actually did a survey a few years ago where essentially the longer people had rented, the more worried they were about no grounds evictions because they'd either received one themselves or a friend had or family had. Um, so young renters uh, coming, kind of coming in sort of sometimes had a bit more of a um, idealistic view and, and thought, oh, no, no, well, it's, it's in the contract that repairs are going to get carried out, so of course I can ask for it. But um, And look, most of the time they can. Uh, it's just this gamble that if a person doesn't, um, want to carry out the repairs. And often re in reality, it's that they don't necessarily have the money to carry out repairs. They're over leveraged. They're feeling a bit desperate themselves. Yeah. And so they put off repairs, put off repairs mm. and eventually, um, find someone who isn't asking anymore. Leo, in the COVID world, there was a lot of people and, and I think we're going to, maybe not so much now, maybe they've, they've signed up for a higher rent increase, um, because that was their only option, right? So the rent's gone up from $700 a week to $800 or $900 a week or something, right? And they're like, well, we can't go rent anything else. Let's just do it. And then they get six months down the line, you know, they really start struggling, um, you know, start falling behind on their payments. And then they also think part of that is because the rent went up, et cetera. Or in COVID, a lot of people couldn't pay the rent, you know, maybe it was their role or their job got, you know, was no work. Maybe they're in, you know, um, hospitality, et cetera. Um, and they damaged their credit file. Um, well, their, their rental property file, I guess, not so much their credit file. Um, are you seeing a lot of people where in this tight rental market that they get evicted, um, either it's through they can't afford the rent increase um, or they don't, they, they're late on their arrears, they get kicked out with tribunal or something, um, that they can't end up renting something else um, because their rental history is tarnished. And really it wasn't their fault per se. It was just the circumstances that were put in because of COVID or because of the rent increase or because you know, just something else in life, do you find that they're slipping through the gaps and, you know, almost they're, they're basically having to become homeless or moving with family or friends because they've just had that really traumatic event that they have really damaged their file for a number of years? Yeah. So look, you know, it's tricky, right? Because if you re were renting at a relatively high level and, and maybe your income dipped for a bit, but it's, it's sort of on back on par as, as it was before, uh, even with that mark against you, you might still be a seen as a less risky proposition than someone with half your income but a clean record. Right. And so these are the kind of um, decisions that a property manager uh, is making when they're looking at the, all the applications. They're judging all the applications against each other. And this is one of the sort of flaws, I, I think, actually, in our system is that we've turned it into this competitive process where rather than assessing an individual on their uh, ability to sustain the rent the rental um, on their likelihood of breaching. We're actually comparing against sometimes yep. hundreds of other people, and that means that sometimes judgments are made. Um, and and to be fair, you know, a property manager trying to assess a hundred applications, uh, you know, that's a huge job. So they're looking for the ways to slice and dice that pile to to get a good result for their uh, for their their landlord, but. Um, but without spending six months, you know, making a decision. So people are being having a mark against them. And then there's this question, okay, well, if you're in the databases uh, because of that, but actually you're still generally a pretty attractive proposition, 
how much value are the databases bringing? They're an indication of potential risk, but there's actually, I, I, I don't think that we've seen good evidence that they're necessarily that predictive of how well a tenancy is going to go, because obviously someone might never have been in the database and things can go wrong. And some people are in the databases and everything will go uh, fantastically well, you know. So it's a it's a tricky one and I, I don't envy property managers at the moment, uh, you know, dealing with, with so many applications and, and so many difficult decisions. Yeah, I mean, look, property management is is a thankless task anyway, really. I mean, it's a, it's a very hard job and there's quite a lot of churn in the industry because it is such a demanding job. And you're dealing with, you know, often people in stress – to some degree on both ends of the equation, often landlords or I know there's a more political correct term, um, property providers at one end are the client and then they've got the tenants at the other end. And it's often been this sort of, um, I guess, uh, almost adversarial, you know, this sort of, it's it's almost like in our DNA that we just expect tenants and property providers to sort of be at odds with each other. Whereas in reality, as an investor, I want to have a happy tenant. You know, I want to maintain the property. I want to make sure that the tenant uh, gets has a responsive property manager. You know, that's that's my approach as an owner of an investment property. I do know that not everyone has that same attitude. I get that. And and I'm it's funny. I'm reflecting on um, this conversation around rental increases as well because there's a lot of dialogue out there at the moment that investors are raising rents because of their costs going up with rising interest rates. But the yep. fact is that if we could do that, then we'd rise them when, you know, we'd raise rents whenever costs went up. And I can tell you from experience, I'll give you one experience of one of my properties. I used to get 720 a week for it. I can't remember exactly when it dropped to 700, but that was before COVID. And then my tenant, I had a great tenant, but they happened to buy a property and moved to Perth at exactly the wrong time, like March 2020. And so then I took an absolute bath. I think I was giving five eighty a week for it just to get it rented out. And I only had one application and they were terrible. They were not good tenants, but I just for cash flow, I took them on. Now they left after their six months. And then I think, you know, I've had, a, I think I've had two tenants since then. I've got these great tenants at the moment paying six fifty. right? Now the reality is the market forces and now such that we're back to market rent being around about 720 for that property but that's been around about a 5 year turnaround and so they could claim oh my god that's unfair rents are going up but as a landlord i say well actually i've gone with the market market pressures had had rents going down for some time i had to suck it up you know um, do the tenants contact you or, or to or those those tenancy advocates uh, tenants advocacies and say oh my god my rent's falling i'm upset you know yeah. um and so it is part of a bigger picture when you when you look at that. I'm not sort of trying to yeah. claim that I've had a particularly good or particularly hard up, but yeah. but it is part of a bigger picture. And of course, when you've got these market forces that have been conspiring for some time, uh, a lot of people we've been talking to about the rental shortage are saying this is not a sudden thing, mm. you know. So I'm sort of curious. Um, two questions coming out of this long winded preamble, but one: Do you blame property investors? Right. Um, in any way. And also, did you see this crisis coming? So, uh, blame is, is not the right word. I, I think <laughs> that the, uh, what we, what the problem that we have is that we've set up the property investment as an investment first and kind of a home as like a, if you're lucky, they come second. And that's what we need to turn around. We, we, we need to see renting and housing generally as an essential service. And in the same way that, you know, when you go to your local GP or when you go to your energy company, these are businesses that are trying to make money, but they put the service delivery first and then they make sure that their, you know, business model works so that they can continue to deliver that business. Um, that's what's gone kind of awry. And so property investors have been told uh, by government, by banks, by financial advisors, this is how you do it, uh, by, by real estate agents as well. This is how you do it. This is the approach you should take. Um, and you know, you're an investor, you're trying to get the most, uh, that you can out of your investment. That's all kind of quite natural. Uh, what we need to do is recognize that that's not working for the community. That's not working to deliver what the community needs. And, uh, that then lets us have a bit more mature conversations about, okay, what does it look like to make sure that 
uh, people can access homes where they need it, that they're good quality, that they're safe to live in, and that they provide the sort of stability that we know uh, homes need, uh, you know, just at a mental health uh, level. Um, there was a good study a couple of years ago now that showed that an owner-occupier uh, who stays in place for six years, is if that's the baseline for mental health, uh, tenants need that six years to, to be at the same level. The average tenancy in Australia is about 18 months. So you can imagine the kind of the pressure just on your sort of uh, well-being of moving four mm. times, you know, in that same period. The So we, we need to have these kind of conversations and say, what are we trying to achieve here? What's the actual outcome that we want? Um, do we agree that it's homes for people? If we agree on that, okay, how do we finance that? How do we resource it? How do we make that happen? Um, that's a perfectly reasonable conversation to have. And in some instances, um, the the private sector will be able to do that. In some instances, they won't. Um, and that's where government has to step in uh, and either build themselves or look at regulation to kind of make sure that that, uh, that outcome is being met. And, it, and I really see it as a balance here. So um, in terms of the supply, you can address all of these issues by sort of having a tenants market where uh, there's so much competition between providers that they have to go out and make their case to the to the cons consumers and say, I'm going to offer you a really long lease. You're, you're safe and secure here. I'm going to repaint the walls. It's going to be beautiful. What color would you like? Um, do you have pets? Would you, you know? Do you want to bring them in? That that's a tenants market where tenants are being sold to. At we haven't seen that, and I mean certainly not in my time, and I really don't think we've seen it ever. Uh, that that's the dynamic. And that's what we expect in other areas. So if you think about even food, which is an essential service, but very market-based, very free, you know, it's, there's no kind of um, yeah. really strict regulation around it. Uh, and we see the food providers competing with each other and saying, please come to our store. We're going to give you this deal. We're going to cut prices. We're going to do such and such. Um, that's what you can do with supply. If that's not the dynamic that's when you need regulation. So the more we build, the more we get to that, the less regulation you need to achieve the same result. <laughs> um, I don't think it's realistic to think that we're going to build at that level because because what that means in reality is that you probably have this quite large surplus of properties that are very attractive to live in, that are in good locations, all that, um, but no one wants to live in them because they've got so many other options and yeah. that's what produces that market dynamic. That's a huge amount of construction material alone, let alone investment in a thing that people aren't going to live in. And so uh, we're going to need regulation. We need reasonable regulation to achieve that same result. The, what's missing is a conversation that um, has a shared outcome from all the different stakeholders. Uh, we're really, we're talking across purposes. Um, uh, renters are looking for a home that they can rely on and investors are looking for a return uh, on an investment. And that don't have to be incompatible, but currently they sort of are. Yeah, I mean, there's two. There's a there, there are a lot of the challenges with the uh, the way we build the housing system is there's the owner occupied demand, and it's people who want to live in their homes, and and that and that drives the market, right? And ultimately, people who are renting, a lot of them want to get into the owner occupied market, so they don't see themselves as long term renters. Like, you know, they they see the aspirational part of them says they're only doing it for a period till they can save to, or it's a life stage sort of thing, and it's in your twenties or. You know, and then there's obviously people who are, you know, at other stages as well. Um, the problem is the way that we build the housing system is that we've relied on the private sector to fund the, the rental market, right? No institutional investment. There's no super funds. There's no real government, there's very little government support, et cetera. Um, but I mean, if you could tip the private investors into a property that um, for investors long-term and just hundred percent looking for investors long-term, but also provide a great capital return. Um, and, uh, you know, great buildings, um, you know, great rental returns, et cetera, um, like a build to rent for the private sector. Um, I, I think there would be money there because a lot of investors would feel safety in knowing that, you know, that is a building that's going to, um, have great long-term, you know, facilities, it's going to have great tenants, um, et cetera. It's, it's sort of flipping the model from, um, one-to-one, -one, or maybe it's a fund, or maybe it's like a, all investors invest in a fund together that's government backed that goes and buys a thousand properties that are rented to the rental market. And you can come in and out if you want, you just got to sell your unit. So do you think some of these ideas, because there is a lot of build to rent going on with the governments and big uh, developers like the Mervax, et cetera. Um, 
but I don't think it's really much on the mass market, like uh, residential sort of mum and dad investors are playing in this, this market. I think one of the challenges is that uh, the, uh, the reason that people are attracted to property is a little bit emotional rather than purely rational. So they like that there's a physical object. And, yeah. and sometimes it's also that they plan to live in it at some point or they used to live in it. Uh, you know, we see a lot of fluidity where owner-occupied homes move into rental and back again, and they yeah. just keep moving back and forth. And so um, that's one of those challenges is how do you uh, kind of yeah. address that dynamic? Um, but I think, you know, we, we do need to think about the impact that keeping renting as a relatively poor experience um, is having on owner-occupiers. Because at the moment, the reason people are so sort of aspirational about it is yeah. that it's not actually the ownership that they're after. It's the stability, yeah. the affordability in age. We yeah. can provide that through the private rental sector. We're just choosing not to. And that's actually putting a big premium on owner-occupiers because they're paying for that stability, that affordability, that they're then competing and, and borrowing more and more money and being kind of transformed into needing to think like an investor, um, needing to, to, to borrow a, a huge amount of money and hope that the capital gain over time will work out that that was yeah. a, a wise decision, right? Rather than just going, this is a house that works for me and my family at this point in my life and, and you know, I can rely on it. So renters are much more efficient in uh, a sort of, kind of allocation, size allocation, number of bedrooms and so on, be, partly because they can move more easily. There's not mm -hmm. that barrier to, 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 to moving around. And um, and so that's actually something we should encourage as well. There's a there's an interesting sort of dynamic or argument in places like Switzerland where they actually see that a really high renting population is an indicator of wealth, uh, that, that they see that the cities with high renting populations um, being the places where the wealthier people are living and the owner-occupiers are in the regional, rural areas. Um, and, you know, they, they have a very different kind of cultural take on what it means to be a renter and that then drives a lot of their their sort of um, different policy decisions. Do you know one thing that's quite interesting I found in Sydney for example if you look at Potts Point, Rushcutters Bay, Elizabeth Bay that little peninsula there that now I'm pulling this out of my head so I don't have that my finger on the data but over the last 30 years I read somewhere that that as a as a locale has experienced the highest amount of capital growth right and so that contradicts a whole bunch of assumptions and myths around property one one of those myths is that apartments don't go at the same rate as houses because predominantly unit stock there another myth is that um, you need to have a higher proportion of owner occupiers in an area for that to happen but actually in that area something like 60 it's around two-thirds uh, rental um, so it sort of flies in the face, but what it does have, it's a, it's obviously proximity to this city, proximity to the harbour, you know, high degree of desirable lifestyle and, and transport, um, but also very established stock. Like it, there's not a lot of new, new bills in that area because it's quite dense and it's been obviously developed over many, over a period, a, a long period of time. So it throw, throws in the face, but in reality, what's actually happening there, because there's a very high income level of people that live there as well, is also quite a diversity of stock, but you've got some of the most expensive apartments in Sydney are there. You know, so you've actually got there as a little microcosm within Sydney of effectively not acknowledged, but effectively what you're talking about in Switzerland. Mm. So we do have it here. We do do it, but we don't discuss it or acknowledge it so i just yeah. that's an interesting one isn't it yeah and look i mean you know mosman is uh actually more than 50 percent renters or very close to 50 percent renters like it, it there are these sort of counter examples where uh because of the closeness to the city because of the amenity it is attractive uh for for renters and and ultimately we are talking about that supply and demand feature so if you make a, a place uh, something that is uh, accessible that people can actually find a home in, um, they're going to come there and it is very likely to uh, attract capital growth um, and, uh, and probably rent pricing as well. I mean, Sydney is an interesting one because unlike a lot of other cities, we uh, haven't really maintained, and there's certainly been a shift even within Sydney, uh, of the inner city being something that uh, lower income 
households were living in it and um, higher income households were further out because you could get bigger um, blocks, you could get bigger land. And we did see that very briefly during COVID uh, that mm. the people did leave the city um, and it became less attractive. And we then saw, you know, pretty decent yeah. uh, rent, rent decreases as a result. Um, but it, but it's interesting that we, we also have a different approach to where, how a lot of other cities around the world have gone where uh, that inner city has become more and more uh, for higher incomes rather than rather than. It's interesting what you're just talking about there, uh, Leo, in terms of what happened in COVID in the inner city Sydney, and I know Melbourne had the same issue, uh, probably Brisbane did too, uh, where people effectively evacuated the city in many ways, and and obviously there's a lot of overseas students as well that went back back home, um, a lot of uh, hospitality workers that moved home and. The vacancy rate in inner city Sydney, I think, hit something like thirteen percent at one point. Now, obviously, it's that's reversed quite significantly. Um, but you know, it's back to this sort of idea about our system and how we actually support mm. the provision of housing because land individual landlords or property providers or property investment property owners, they cop the hit. Right? There's a moratorium on renting uh, on evictions, so no one could turf out a tenant if they weren't paying. But if the tenant left or even if they weren't paying, the owner of that property had to find a way to manage. Now, thankfully, interest rates, you know, dropped down to point, or the official rate was 0.1% whatever. There was some support in that regard. But, you know, in terms of who bears the risk for providing these properties, that individual owner is the one sucking that up, right? And the tenant's able to go, you know what, there's a key, see you later, um, with very, very little cost to them. And and I get that, you know, I'm not saying I'll, those terrible tenants and those poor landlords. I'm not saying that, but I'm just talking about the inequity that that sometimes the pendulum swings from uh, the tenants really uh, being hard done by right through. And that was a great example of, of really, I guess, the susceptibility to things like that happening. And then the owner of the property is the one really bearing uh, massive financial risk there. And of course, because our, our country our governments have sort of shirked responsibility in terms of provision of a lot of affordable housing. That responsibility has landed on the on the shoulders of individual investors. And it's such a fragmented industry. You know, like you're dealing with individuals who own these properties and they're generally being run and managed by small businesses who are the local real estate agencies typically across the board. So, you know, that sort of, I guess, the the issues with the provision of housing and the way it's viewed as housing versus as an investment, you can see why that's set up to not support what you're talking about. So what are, are there answers that you think are on the horizon? I mean, do you think the build to rent sector, for instance, is going to help turn that on its head? I mean, what do you think is going to be required to change that? And is it is it dead in the water? I mean, is it basically our pipeline so small and our demand for rental properties so large that we can't see this being resolved for decades? Yeah. So uh, let me go through a couple of things there. So let's start with um, uh, the eviction moratoriums in New South Wales, and they, they did differ across uh, mm. states. But in New South Wales in particular, um, it was against rent arrears evictions. But the no grounds evictions weren't prevented. And so actually what we kept seeing was that uh, investors and agents weren't negotiating on the rent and they were essentially freezing the tenant out who had this kind of piling debt um, and they would either receive a no grounds notice or the tenant would just have to leave because they were getting up to ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 and they just started mm. to freak out. So um, the we, we really didn't see uh, a soft landing there for a lot of people. A lot of agents and landlords negotiated essentially on their own back, and particularly at early days, we saw people quite proactive. But once that kind of initial wave, if you hadn't jumped in then, uh, it was quite hard to get the, the whole sector along. And a bit of a reasons- luck of, I suppose a bit of a luck of the draw too for a tenant. You know, if they're living in a property that that person's owned for 30 years, is very low debt or no debt on, and they're able to help... And I know a lot of property managers did say that, that a lot of their their owners were very, very supportive and proactive and other people didn't have that luxury. So, you know, and that's the luck of the draw thing, isn't it, really? 
I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions. And you can find out all about what I'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au. And there you'll find resources for first home buyers, details about my buyer's agent mentoring program, access to suburb help for investors, or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or lower north shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. If you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one, or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly, get the finance right. Please reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. Exactly. And so that was actually quite often during COVID, I feel like I was the one standing up in front of the media and saying landlords need more support because they're not <laughs> actually offering support. And um, unfortunately, some people in the industry wanted to keep punching down on the tenants and say, no, you have to keep paying, find the money, work it out. And I was trying to say, no, no, the banks have not done a good job here. They haven't really given relief. Government needs to go back, federal government in particular needs to go back to the banks and say, you actually need to do a proper pause, not just a pause on the repayments, but a pause on the interest. Because that was that kept coming up in negotiations where landlords are saying, look, I can't reduce the rent that much more because at the end of this, I'm going to have this big interest bill to, to repay. So uh, that was a big problem. And I think that that does speak to that issue of this really defragmented uh, sort of provision where there's not a consistent approach. Um, and in particular, the investors don't have um, training that they have to do. The, the only barrier to entry to being a landlord is that you have control of a property. Um, you don't even, you don't have to own it outright. In, in, in many instances, and these often fell apart in COVID, you didn't even have to have a mortgage. We saw these kind of entrepreneurial head tenants who were renting out places and they really uh, collapsed quite quickly. But the, uh, you know, it, it, it's there's not that barrier to entry, which is strange in a, an essential service where you regulate everything. Your local burger joint has a food license. You know, it's, it's so it's very strange that we don't have these kind of uh, regulations. And what that would do actually is allow government to have much better conversations with the providers to work out what's happening, what are the pain points, what's going wrong in you know, that kind of a crisis, and then better deliver support. And that was a big issue that um, I had many conversations with ministers offices and things where they said look we just don't know how this is going and so it ended up being you know people on the tenants uh you know side uh not to not to fall into adversary but uh people representing tenants people representing an property uh, managers putting forward their experiences but there was no single point of truth that government could kind of rely on and so that sort of uh relationship with government uh, where you do know who's providing what services, how they're going, that would have helped uh, a great deal. And I think that that is one of the paths out. Um, and, and it's one of the things that flows from that sort of essential service conversation is um, ultimately it's in most investors' interests to have a nice, stable uh, sector that you can rely on. You can better judge the various yeah. risks and um, what's likely to happen in five years and 10 years and, and so on. Um, and the the counter sort of balance to that is that tenants also have that stability. They know that they can rely on the property. They know broadly where their rent's going to go. Um, and so they can plan their lives as well. And that would be in everyone's interests. It would come at a, a probably a reduction in the level of uh, profit that's being made. And I think that this is something that's often sort of um, missed is that the there is the, the same risk and reward sort of uh, that, that every business takes. Um, and we have made investors, uh, as well as owner occupiers, take on quite large risks, but they're getting quite large rewards. So when you leverage a property with a 20% deposit, the return on your investment isn't the difference between the purchase price and the purchase price when you sell or sales price. It's the change in equity. And so if you're highly leveraged on a 20% deposit, uh, a 10% change in the sales price is more like a, a 40, 50% return on investment. And yeah. I don't think people appreciate that that's the level of financial risk and reward that's in play. <laughs> I would argue it's even a lot more than that, Leo. The, the, um, I was going to ask you a question around the fighting system, right? The big system that you 
that has to change, you know, regulating property, et cetera. But while we're on that return to equity point, a lot of investors, um, you have got first-time investors, but a lot of investors are portfolio buying it using leverage on their home. And so all they're really outlaying isn't any deposit. They're only outlaying the negative cash flow that are holding that property. So that negative cash flow, because of things like negative gearing, et cetera, uh, might only be 10 grand a year, right? And so it might be 10 grand a year for the first 10 years. Then hopefully um, after the first 10 years, rent's gone up enough and you know your mortgage was the same and then you're potentially not costing you anything, right? So you know for that 10 grand a year that they're investing, they might be in that scenario owning a, a $1 million plus property. Um, and, you know, if that $1 million property, you know, goes to 1.1 or 1.2 or 1.3 million, well, that 10 grand a year has gotten that hundreds of thousands of dollars of growth. It's, it's, and, and I think that's, a lot of investors don't understand that, to be honest. They don't even agree. And really what drives their property investment is the negative cash flow. So as long as they can afford that, um, and potentially paying down the mortgage with principal and interest, et cetera. Um, but that's really the best structure that investors should be using. And so it's highly enticing if that negative cash flow is offset by capital gains um, that a lot that's, of taxed. Um, and that's where a lot of investors go wrong because they actually yeah. don't buy a property that actually gives them that capital gain, which is one of the reasons. One of the things that feeds into our crisis at the moment is quite a lot of investors finally in 2021 thinking, finally, I've got some capital growth, I'm getting out. Yeah. And um, and that's because they bought investments that didn't deliver on all of the things you're just talking about because that's ideally why you should, you know, what you're after when you're, you should be after when you're investing. Um, and that, you know, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a problem. But actually that sort of feeds into a question I got for you, which I asked earlier, but we sort of got waylaid, which was, did you see this crisis coming? Yeah. Because that's one of the, the inputs, but there's a lot of other inputs. Yeah. Look, yeah, th- this, this has been inevitable for a long time because we just haven't uh, made sure that the supply – uh, which is really the mechanism we've we've relied on, as, you know, as a society uh, to continue providing housing. The supply wasn't ever there. We've we've really in a, in a kind of baked in endemic under availability. So there might be enough buildings, but they're not available for people to move into. They're not at uh, you know they're not at the quality that people need for for homes. Uh, they might not be in the locations that that work. So it's um, we 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 really struggle, I think, with a broad. Uh, overall strategy and i think this is where uh you can see some real distinctions between the way that we uh and regulators approach energy provision for instance where there's a huge amount of data and there's a lot of oversight making sure that all the different players are coming together to make sure that people have energy when they you know turn on their power switch um we don't bring that kind of uh, uh approach to housing where we're saying to the developers, to the builders, to the purchasers, uh, you know, this is what we need. This is what you're a part of a system that's delivering. Um, and if it's falling down in, in one area, then we need to pick that up. We need some way to, to encourage that. And if that's, you know, uh, the development applications aren't being processed fast enough, fine. Like that's a, that's a problem to solve. It may not be that that's the actual issue, uh, you know, in place we need to pour some money into um, a builder's hands to say, look, we've got this empty land. It's not yet commercially viable. So government's going to chuck in some money to make it viable to actually start building. Or we're going to look at the density in different areas. Um, there's some there's some very strange, when, when you look at kind of a density map of Sydney, there's some very strange areas that really are not performing, uh, that it, it does not make sense um, until you th- consider that it's not actually a rational system that's aimed at delivering housing to people. Can, can you give us some examples? Uh, well, I live on the North Shore of, the, of Sydney and most of my area. Uh, so I, I live in a townhouse, for instance, and I think that's one thing that we haven't really encouraged enough in Sydney, the the, the sort of missing middle. Um, you don't have to do, and there's a lot of residents around here um, who are very worried about big apartment blocks going up around transport hubs and so on. They feel like it's going to overload the system. Um, but the problem is that the, the, uh, um, some of the, the people raising these issues are living a couple of hundred metres away from a train station in a massive mansion, mm. and we're not seeing the, the kind of usage of this land to be a row of townhouses. Um, and I can tell you, I, I spent the first half of COVID in an apartment, uh, and, the, and the sort of uh, since uh, um, kind of 2021 in a townhouse. The townhouse is so much nicer, and mm. it's a perfectly kind of great place to be. So... 
Um, I don't think we should be worried about these kind of middle things that would ease a lot of pressure on the development needs um, that, that people don't like as much, that the really huge apartment blocks. So are you suggesting we should be knocking down mansions within a couple of hundred metres of the station? We we should be considering what's going wrong in that they're, that they're not being used uh, effectively. To And so, look, you know, no one's wanting to see someone actually push out of their home to make that happen. That would be a, a bad outcome and, and a very unpopular one. Um, but, you know, when a property becomes becomes vacant for some reason, I think there should be a, uh, a discussion about, well, why isn't this going to be um, incentivized? And it could well be with, you know, financial contribution to make it happen, but incentivized to ensure that it's helping deliver. Because um, otherwise, what we keep doing is building on the very edges of the city uh, out west, and there's not the kind of support, there's not the uh, train links, there's not the community infrastructure that supports all this new building out there. Um, and so then it's not a pleasant place to be, um, and people are, are kind of feeling um, trapped. They they are right up against their neighbours, and it hasn't been designed in a way to facilitate that. So you know they're not building in a decent backyard, so that you might be up against each other sideways. But when you're up against each other, you know from all sides, it just becomes this sort of cloying. Uh, and it also means that we are experiencing the heat impacts, um, particularly in Western mm. Sydney of so much construction, uh, so much constructed uh, dwellings and not enough greenery, which is where, you know, um, I've got trees, you know, I mean, very, it's, it's a pretty dense kind of group of housing, but we've got trees, we've got greenery, I've got a decent view out the, the back, it's a nice place to be, right? We can achieve that for everyone when choosing not to at the moment. It's sort of interesting because, I mean, I live in Newtown, which is very dense and um, in terms of small houses, not, not a huge amount of apartments. Um, townhouses for that matter mainly because of the age but also it's full of workers cottages yeah so and there are trees everywhere like i i actually am amazed but you know, a lot of the new developments they start by basically raising the site you know so taking out all these established trees and it takes decades to get some some you know high, a high degree of foliage in in leaf cover foliage covers that was called um, in an area, but there's a lot of infill sites as well that, you know, like you look at Mascot, for example, that was all industrial land and it's been, at, you know, there's a lot of apartments there. I mean, I'm not in a rush to get to get in there or encourage any of my clients to buy in there either for that matter, but there, there is that type of development around. And I think you mentioned earlier about the quality of development, the style of development and, um, you know, the the appeal of, of a lot of what has been developed and obviously, we want to get some people on the podcast in coming months to talk about the quality of developments and, and has that been changing since, certainly since we had our building commissioner in New South Wales as well. Um, so I hear you that, that there's not that overarching. I mean, the state government does put in place, uh, you know, uh, development control plans. Uh, is it LEPs? No, DCPs. I can't remember which was which. But um, And then, of course, they hand that to local government. There's all this argy-bargy because local government's arguing against, you know, what the state wants to achieve and there's lots of penalties and whatever. But So you do, we see a lot of that that conflict and none of the cohesion. So I I 100% agree with you. And then that's just state-based, let alone national. So, you know, have your priorities changed, you know, in terms of tenant advocacy with this rental crisis? Because I would imagine the problems have changed. So, to a degree, but really, like, like I said, this has been coming for a long time. We've been in various levels of crisis for a long time. And the basics of the problems have been the same for, for decades. And so, um, largely, no, because one of the big problems we have, for instance, is um, the no grounds evictions, the... the um, the way that that interacts with anything else you want to do with uh, regulation means that if you do it, it, it won't be effective. So, um, you know, New South Wales brought in... Right. It's like the get-out-of-jail clause, is that what you're saying? Exactly. It's the right. ultimate trump card. And mm. it means that you you bring in place energy efficiency standards or we, we brought in place minimum standards um, for, for some habitability things. If you can be evicted for... Uh, uh, for, or, or, or even you are scared to bring it up. So it's not even that you get it, it's just that you're worried about the possible implications. Then it undermines those rules. And this was 
back in 1975, uh, the Whitlam Poverty Inquiries, they covered a whole lot of stuff. There was one particular element of that, which was the Law and Poverty Inquiry that uh, Ronald Sackville, who's now on the Disability Royal Commission, um, he essentially designed our modern renting system. They had 37 recommendations uh, about how to address the the law to prevent um, you know, deepening poverty, to address some of the imbalances. He'd be interviewed all sorts of people, um, and he came up with 37 recommendations. Pretty much every state and territory in Australia took up 36 of them. The one that Sackville said, you have to do this one, otherwise everything else isn't going to work, was the one that we didn't do. And that was removing no-grounds evictions and replacing it with a set list. So in 75, Sackville said, own a move-in, significant renovation or change of use, um, and obviously breaches and so on. Uh, these are the reasons that a tenancy, um, it, it's, it's acceptable to end it. And uh, we didn't do it. And unsurprisingly, the relationship has been pretty rocky. But within that, we, we've been trying, you know, governments have tried different things to, to improve it. And um, we're starting to see them, I think, recognise that you actually can't uh, achieve the other outcomes that you want if you don't address this sort of very basic relationship-setting uh, item because you, you're you just not coming together as partners yeah. to negotiate. Leo, is that sort of your, I guess, you know, your mission statement is probably to change that one thing and then mm. you start to change other things after that? I mean, I... I guess it's a bit frustrating when you're in a system and you can see the imbalances. You can see that, um, you know, we, we had yesterday the Labor government came and changed rules around superannuation, right? Like it's easy pickings. When we start to, when they went to the election to try to change negative gearing in CGT, and um, I mean, given there was lots of other um, policies that um, they were also trying to do at the same time, which were, you know, pushing votes in different directions. But, um, you know, they're probably not brave to go back to the property market again, right? But they're easy, they're brave to go and change super. Um, and so it, I guess is it when you're fighting the system and under, um, the unregulated property market, which gives so much benefits to the banking sector, which is a huge part of our, our superannuation sectors invested in the banking sector. You've got the construction sector, the jobs, the, the state government, the federal government, the finance segment, um, et cetera, all benefiting from that world. Um, and we've got a huge migration um, yeah. and uh, we want to grow. So we need to lower the... Um, you know, reduce red tape around transactions, right? Make it easier to transact, make it easier to build. Um, just keep building because that's where the profit is. Many of these tenants that are left behind uh, along the journey. Is it sort of you to say, well, I'm not going to try to change the system because the system has got too many, you know, conflicted interests. But if I can change this one thing, that would dramatically increase the benefits for tenants and then I can start chipping away at other challenges. Is that sort of the way you guys are attacking it or, um, yeah. Essentially, I mean, you know, I think we often are operating at a few different levels. One is the specific kind of regulatory questions that come up from time to time. So, you know, rent bidding, uh, the privacy yeah. laws. We, and we're always going to try and give our best uh, advice on, 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 on how to address these things. Um, with the proviso that, yes, it, it's going to be less effective if you haven't done uh, no grounds. And, you know, governments, <laughs> government workers in particular get sick of hearing it. But, the, but it is just the, the way that, that it is. Um, so we try and craft things, craft solutions that, that are going to work, that, that are at least going to make a difference, even if it doesn't go the whole way, you know, uh, it'll, it'll improve things. It's a step in the right direction. Um, I think that the other part is talking about some of these kind of cultural concerns, the way that we think about renting. And so trying to show, uh, to demonstrate that people who rent, are real people. We, the, we, we, we've got these homes. We, we value our homes just as much as everyone else. Um, that changing that kind of attitude then makes some of these other conversations much easier. And uh, it can be tricky sometimes having those, the, the, the very big and you know, immovable things, kind of cultural values. But mm. th that's part of our work is to actually address that conversation to try and then have... Uh, other things put in place like the the reasonable grounds because it does just become much more irresistible once you accept uh a, a shared value system yeah. um and so i mean you know we are certainly talking a lot more about rent increases than we have in the past because uh the sector um and a lot of economists get very skittish about things like rent regulation uh which is un you know 
understandable given some of the academic literature, understandable given the the, the kind of um, incentives. But you know, we are one of the few, uh, you know, very wealthy nations that doesn't have forms of rent regulation. Um, and certainly one of the few that won't have a conversation about it. And when we're seeing increases of 30, 40% in a year, I mean, it just becomes a bit sort of silly not to at least have a conversation about it. The, That's uh, true. But if you're talking about 30, 40%, is that coming off a, a rent that has been decreased through the lockdown period, though? Do you know what I mean? It's quick, quite diff- It's more difficult to get a baseline given our recent history. Yeah, no, for sure. In the inner city, there were rent falls, but actually on the fringes of Sydney and mm. definitely in the regions, there was no noticeable yes. rent drop. And, yep. and actually, they're the ones who are being hit hardest with rent increases yeah. at the moment and um, over the last couple of years. So we can say very confidently that if you're in a regional town mm-hmm. and the rents have increased 30%, that has not been coming off a, a lower yep. base. Yep. And in the inner ring, it's certainly true, you know, there was a there was a big fall. And so some of the rebound is kind of getting back to where you would have been otherwise. But we're really seeing it above, you know, a kind of if you drew the trend line, we're back above the trend line um, now. So it's not as dramatic, but uh, at the end of the day, also it is, we've got to kind of consider that Sydney, the inner ring of Sydney was already some of the most expensive places to rent and uh, buy real estate in the world, let alone the country, uh, particularly in relation to incomes. And so we were already inflated um, and you could make a pretty decent case, I think, to say that what we saw in those COVID price drops was getting closer to where in an ideal system we'd be. Um, the issue, though, for investors is that you, they're not calibrated for that level of rent, they're calibrated for a higher level of rent. And so it's got to be um, a relatively sort of calm process to get to a rent level that is uh, working for the community, but also works for the calculations of how uh, investors are approaching things. And, and almost certainly that means price falls on purchases uh, in the end, whether it's slow yeah. and we just yeah. let inflation take care of it. But yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that is a problem too, because of course, you know, whilst investors might like to think that yield, you know, we, we definitely do not encourage people to buy property for yield. Um, and one of the reasons is because there is actually no correlation between the sale price or the purchase price and the rental, as opposed to commercial real estate, where there is a direct correlation between those two things. And so, um, you know, Chris was saying earlier before that, you know, that really uh, an investor needs to approach a property investment with through a cash flow lens, but that the temptation there is to look at yield as being the most important metric, but it's actually not. Uh, it's like it's your it's your ROI on your your annual input, you know, towards your your long term capital growth. Now, um, yeah, I just one last question before we ask you your Dumbo. You did mention reform before, and we did we were talking about you know just then about you know a, a big fish to fry for you guys would be changing um, that note that no cause. Um, no, yeah, no cause evictions, no grounds. Thank you. No. Uh, no they, they, yeah, they have different names in different states. Mental blank there. Um, anything beyond that? What other reform is in the wings? So, look, I mean, I think there's a, a quite a lot that has gone unexplored and uh, is becoming more important, um, particularly during COVID. So we talked a little bit there about um, the regulation and also potential licensing of providers. Um, and I think that's a really interesting conversation to have other countries. So Scotland has introduced a, a register. It's very cheap, you know, it doesn't cost a lot to register, but it just provides that level of uh, transparency around the system. I think it would help property managers a huge amount to, to have better lines of accountability as well. Um, but the probably the big one that's really coming up at the moment is the application process. This is functionally unregulated and that means that um, property managers are left trying to work out what does it mean to act in the landlord's best interest in running this application process and uh, they that means that they can be quite susceptible to you know, a, a prop tech coming along and saying hey we can get you the social media data on these tenants and wouldn't that be useful in a risk, risk assessment and then the agent has to say well I mean I don't know how I feel about this but if I consider the, that I have to act in the landlord's best interest, 
well, maybe I should get the data. It might help. So we have this area where it's very um, unclear, I think, for property managers, what their real responsibilities are, what's the best approach. It means that dealing with people who aren't tested, who aren't necessarily regulated, and, and it hasn't been considered if it's a, a, a you know net benefit. And it all feeds into this really competitive process where, again, you might be taking in 100 applications, you're comparing them all against each other, which is a huge amount of work. It would be much more efficient to have one application who you consider, is this person appropriate for the property? Can they afford the rent? Do they, do they meet the criteria? And if you're going to say no to that person, why not? You know, what's that? What's the, the, the reason to, to mm. um, refuse? And that would reduce the workload for property managers. It would also increase the transparency, um, the, the understanding from renters of why they might have missed out on a property and so on. Uh, and it would just give everyone a much greater sense of, uh, of of what the process is, what they can expect, and then we can better test new innovations that might well help. You know, there's there's really useful prop tech from a tenant's perspective. At the moment, it's not feeding into a helpful the process and so it feels very invasive and it feels very uh cumbersome but there are potential there for wins on both sides so i think that's a big area that we'd really like to have a a, a, a conversation about interesting stuff because i know i mean obviously like with anything any efficiency or any new technology that's going to make life easier the regulators are always behind the eight ball in terms of well, what are the implications and how does this need to be regulated and if so you know so that is a that is an interesting one, and you can see the temptation just from pure business efficiency. Forget forget trying to to necessarily look after the the land the owner's best interest, which of course they need to do. Property manager needs to do, but just they're also running they're in a business. You know, like if I had a hundred applications, I'd be wanting to look at ways to simplify, streamline that too. You know, um, otherwise, you know, you got to do it one way or the other, whether you use you know, a device or, or um, a prop tech to do that or not. But yeah, I hear you. And, and it's quite funny because I, I listen to the prop tech podcast every now and then and some of the solutions for various problems, I think, oh, that's a very elegant solution, really fully understanding, you know, the problem. And others, I, I just screaming it when I hear, you know, yelling, it's like yelling at the television, you know, it's, it's like, no, you just got it wrong. But anyway, have you got a property Dumbo for us, Leo? So I've been thinking about this, the... Uh, I think that there is, uh, there's been a few examples of this, but um, there was one just last week, so I can use the one in the news, uh, or I can talk to one that kind of I experienced myself but wasn't as bad. And that is not listening to renters reporting problems. Um, we saw in the, the one I'm referring to is uh, a person had spent about three years saying, I think the roof is a problem. I think you need to get the, this roof fixed. And then last week, the roof collapsed on a person sleeping in bed and there's this awful picture of just tiles plastery you know on top of this person oh um, my God. and now that is uh comes from and and the the agent had been saying i've been reporting it like they're trying to get quotes and so on but it comes from this sort of inaction that there's there's just not an urgency mm. when a person reports a problem partly probably because the cash involved in fixing a roof can be uh you know pretty pretty excessive um but it means that they they then put themselves in the line for some pretty severe personal injury. But they've also got to fix the roof, probably at a much greater degree than they would yep. otherwise. <laughs> um, and so my my personal example was a balcony where we had said the same thing. We kept saying, "Look, this the, the, the wooden's kind of started rotting away. Um, we can't really use it. You need to you need to address this." And eventually, it did collapse. Luckily, no one was standing on it. No one got hurt, but uh, the risk was absolutely there. Uh, and so wow. listen to, to renters. Effectively, um, people renting your home are uh, kind of property guardians. They they are caretakers and um, everyone is better off if that property is in a really well-maintained state. Oh, 100%. And I love a tenant that brings things to my attention because I do know that if you leave things and they get worse and they get more costly. But the risk, you know, the personal safety risk there is just, Appalling. I mean, that's just horrific. I'm hoping that person wasn't injured. The one that had the roof collapse on them. I think. Um, I think uh, not so significantly. They won't recover. You know, in time. But mm. but it was. There certainly. You know, there is a real chance of a personal injury. PTSD. The trauma. Yeah. <laughs> like having it. I mean, even roof. just the legal side of that for the landlord, right? Um, if there is evidence that the uh, agency has 
told them multiple times that mm. they need to get this fixed. They have the, the property manager's tired, right? Like they can't only hand, hand, uh, hound someone so much. And um, yeah, I mean, there must be some type of legal ability to sue that landlord, right? For not acting um, ethically and, and taking care of their tenants. And so I think that's the other thing is that people always need to be careful of is that something does go wrong, you're opening yourself up where insurance companies won't protect you, right? Um, yeah. Because, uh, so, yeah, that's, that's a great dumbo. It's good. There is actually case law on the property manager being liable themselves as well because, wow. uh, so there was there was a case a few years ago now where uh, the glass door had been replaced with a non-compliant door and uh, the agent knew about it, didn't prevent the owner from installing the, the, the dodgy door and then was found personally liable as well. The, wow. the, the, the agency would have been liable, but the, um, so, so they can share that, that accountability as well, which, uh, you know, means that it's, it's very tricky. Agents are in a, a tricky situation. If you've got a investor who's not willing to do the work and you're not co- so confident in your, your ability to grow the rent roll and so on without them, uh, that you're willing to dump them, uh, as yeah. a client, which I know many property managers will. Yes, but, uh, I know many that have. Yeah, exactly. For that so, exact reason, yeah. But if you don't feel confident, then, you know, maybe you, you've got a question mark or your licensee saying, you know, uh, no, no, not yet. And yeah, it, it can come as a risk for, for everyone. Yeah. And then yeah. and then all I can think of is is if they are cast adrift and the property manager says, you know what, you're a liability, I, I can't look after you, you won't listen to me, the tenant's still a tenant. And and yeah. there's not a property manager involved. Then it's um that that's obviously where you guys come involved, right? <laughs> yeah, and that's where we get back to that licensing thing because really the accountability yeah. is is always on the person who's in that legal contract who's put the property up for rent. You know, the, the yeah. manager is a facilitator of that. Um, then they're not ultimately the uh the, the person who should be held right. responsible. Um, but people, you know, we we talked around a little bit before. People who are investing do need support. Yep. To make sure that they know what their obligations are, that they're set up to to perform those obligations, um, and when things go wrong, uh, we have been advocating for a little while about a hardship fund that both landlords and tenants could access uh, to be able to sustain tenancies and so on. So that if there is that cash flow problem, mm. it's not all on the investor to to kind of hold the uh, the ruins. Yeah, thank you so much. Really appreciate that chat, Leo. Absolutely. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.